his van was discovered. It's right down the road from where he lived. There was certain things that were in the van that were kind of off. There were strange things about the van being left where it was and him not being, well, basically anywhere. Neighbor close to where the van was parked had had an interaction with him. Everything about it was just so off. He ran through our backyard. My husband tried to calm him down. He claimed somebody was chasing him. The bad guys were after me. He wasn't coherent. He must have been on something because all of a sudden then he recognized me because I happened to be work at the high school in the office. He jumped up and knocked my husband back and took off through our field and that was last we saw him. The door opens of all kinds of possibilities could be a reality. Somebody chasing him, I think, is 100% part of that potential reality. It's one of those things where it could mean all kinds of things, you know, a lot of time has gone by and it's been so long and it, it could have been a number of things. It could have been somebody was really chasing him. That is an absolute reality and I think that with the fact that he's missing and gone, I think that that is a for real thing. This is Kathy, one of Jeremy's friends. It's clear that drugs are involved and that he was taking drugs. When we take drugs and we reach a certain point where it's beyond recreation, paranoia, there's all these added levels. But that being said, I always thought Jeremy to have a really straight head. I've known him, I knew him for a lot of years during all, all kinds of different phases of life. He always was a really smart, calculated person. That was another quality of him that I really loved and enjoyed of him. He was really clever and for the most part on top of things, but drugs can like really fuck with all that and fuck with perspectives and make things make you not on top of your game as much. It's been confirmed by his girlfriend at the time, Suzanne, that Jeremy would binge on cocaine and heroin every six months or so. She hid the evidence, but later opened up about his drug use. He was somebody I was really close with. I loved him dearly. He was one of my dearest friends, a brother. He was, you know, I considered him a brother. During this time, I was not around as much. I just wasn't as physically close to Jeremy. So I didn't know necessarily what was going on in his life at that time as clearly as maybe in the past. I had been in touch with him enough that things were shifting. I was seeing a difference. There was some shifts, but never saw him paranoid or on edge in, in a way before. It's really tough, you know. You, you lose somebody like Jeremy and you come up with all kinds of scenarios. Suddenly the door opens of like all kinds of possibilities. 
could be a reality. And somebody chasing him, I think, is 100% part of that, part of that potential reality. Could he have just had a moment and fell somewhere and hit his head and because he was running from something and and nobody was able to find him? Or, yeah, the possibility, of course, is was somebody also, you know, beyond that paranoia. That being said, I also feel that I think somebody could have also been really fucking after him. I think it could have been a combination of both. I think somebody did something to him. I don't want to think that because it's such a heart-aching place to go, knowing that somebody I cared for and loved their last moments of life were in sheer panic and pain and, and who knows what this person did to them. It's a really hard place to, you know, it's almost you'd rather that he just slipped and fell and hit his head and just went unconscious because that that's that seems almost more humane in jeremy alex's case the people that found his license and the money washed up on the beach if anybody else in that area had found that they would have known immediately that it was hugely important and they did they put it in their fruit bowl that's another interesting part of Maine, which is the push and pull between the people who are from here and the people who are from away. Those people came in from somewhere else and built the house. They didn't know the community. They didn't know the struggles that had been going on. And even though there had been this huge manhunt for Jeremy not that long before, they were totally unaware of it. In April of 2008, four years after Jeremy went missing, a couple who owned a vacation house off of Northport Beach had a friend over who asked about a jar they had in their house with sea glass and various other items they had found on the beach. Some money had washed up, as well as a driver's license. The friend noticed this ID and immediately recognized that it belonged to Jeremy Alex. He remembered his face from a missing person poster. If it wasn't an accident and he didn't hit his head or he didn't try swimming, then somebody has to be responsible. Somebody knows something. If there was somebody really chasing him, what, what were they chasing him for? What was that all about? And who are they? Well, what if he fell into the ocean? Or what if he tried swimming? You know, there's that theory too. Like, what if he was trying to swim? Because he was, you know, it is sort of near the ocean. So then there's that part, like he started swimming and he drowns. And, you know, I, I think about that. He always thought of himself as a strong swimmer. So did he try to get in the ocean and swim out to, the, to an island and drowned on the way? You know, there's that theory. There's so many unknowns and it's very frustrating that there isn't more. I think that there was a lot of people that I didn't know, and Jeremy's friends didn't know that Jeremy was communicating with. These things happen and suddenly everybody is, has a theory and everybody's talking. So how do you decipher through all of that? Especially when you're just a, a hurt human, 
just wanting to find somebody that you love and care about. I think it's tough who would potentially know because I think during this time he was really starting to shut a lot of people out and and he wasn't talking, he wasn't telling people what was going on. I think things were going on and he wasn't talking to people. He was doing what he needed to do and sometimes it's smart not to talk. I think it's like a tough, it's like I want to protect him, I want to protect people, but drugs are involved, man. And this is, I think, a, a, a piece of it. So when drugs are involved, you don't just start, you don't like flap your mouth around, right? You got to be smart. And maybe a theory is that like he was just dealing with some people that I sure as fuck didn't know when other people may not have known. And who were those people? There's a lot of speculation on whether or not Jeremy was paranoid from drugs or if he was actually being chased by bad people. His friend Kathy states that she noticed a shift in how he was, but that he had always had a good head on his shoulders. His girlfriend claimed that his moods were shifting a few days before he went missing. But what if he was actually being chased? According to one person's blog, Jeremy did have someone he was running from. Bradley Williams lives in Belfast, and runs a website making these claims. When Payne and I went up there, we decided to give him a call. Hey, is this Bradley Williams? Who's calling? This is Payne Lindsay. And what is this in regards to? I'm doing a story on Jeremy Alex, the missing person. Oh, yeah, you got the right guy on that. I was Jeremy's guitar teacher. He used to confide everything to me. I know everything. He was a huge fan of the Grateful Dead. See, I, I knew the Grateful Dead personally. That was kind of the basis of our friendship. And Jeremy really looked up to me because I knew the Grateful Dead. I used to play music with them. I was Jeremy's guitar teacher. He was pretty happy to be learning for somebody to actually play guitars with Jerry Garcia. And, uh, yeah, I'm an old hippie, and, you know, I was always trying to be the, the sane influence of these kids' lives. And when Jeremy disappeared, I was, you know, deeply concerned. Recently, I filed a court document. I don't know if you've seen that one. I, I quit using the word allegedly a long time ago, but I think it'd be prudent to use it here. Jeremy was allegedly killed by And, um was a drug dealer. We got maps to seven bodies, hand-drawn by a guy giving a tour of the graveyard by The maps indicate as many as nine bodies. And this guy that drew the maps has never been interviewed. I'm the one that brought the maps to light. To this day, they haven't gone out to look for the bodies where the maps indicate. I mean, any bodies in the backyard, there'd be a pretty safe guess that one of them would be Jeremy Allen's.
Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all of that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. We ended up at Brad's house to see if we could get more information. Hi, it's Brad. I just saw you pull up. I'm heading down to see you. Okay, great. We just got here. Yeah, I'll be right down. Hey, how you doing? Tenderfoot TV, huh? Um, come on. Why don't you sit over here? This sure. is my throne and my computer, so nice. I pull up what we need. So do you still play guitar? I do. I haven't been playing as much lately. Donna? What? There was that document that we filed with the courts. Oh, yeah. Do you know where a copy of that is? Uh, I'd like to get one. There's two or three sets of it floating around. Just laying right on top here someplace. I filed all this. Now that should have blown the whole Jeremy Alex case wide open. How did you get interested in Jeremy's case? Jeremy was a good friend of mine. We were very close, a little circle of friends. That was when Jeremy died, it was the end of the innocence of an awful lot of that group. They were beautiful young hippie kids. He said Jeremy died, but he's missing, right? Well, he's missing. We we pretty much know he's dead. It's, been a foregone conclusion for a long time. You know, so many people claim to have been there when he died, right? It's like, there's everything but the body, and we have the maps to the bodies. Bradley claims that the maps are an outline of the alleged killer's house. Another person, who I won't name here, 
said they went over to the killer's house and were given a tour of where several bodies were buried in a swamp behind the property. After being shown the graves, the man left, and once he was far enough away, he drew these maps from memory. He then showed us an interview he conducted with a man who was given these maps. I actually hired this guy to help me paint my house. He was helping me paint the interior a couple of years ago. And then how did this come up? And he just starts talking about his son that had been killed and how he was involved with Jeremy Alex killing. And I was going, what? And we quit painting. I said, well, come on upstairs. I want to I wanna get this on tape. What's your name? David Lynn Scott, Sr. Because of this, I put the senior on him. Yeah, I, I've seen your son's name in the paper. Right. See, my, I was talking to my son about making this right, doing doing the best he could on it, and whatever happened, you know, just before he got shot. Now, who shot him? Huh? Who shot your son? Robert Tucker. Robert Tucker. Now, that was he got caught, right? Yeah, but I mean, they didn't do nothing to him. They didn't charge him at all, nothing. Okay, and so, um... David Jr., I, I, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry about that, but we're going to bust some of these people. Your son, David Lynn Scott Jr., died of a shotgun. Died of a pistol shot, I think. Right straight through the hat. That shot was meant to kill. You know that. It yeah. weren't, weren't meant to wound him. Stabbed Jeremy out. He beat him to death. Beat him to death. On Waldo Mountain. They heard it on the scanner over in Searport that Jeremy was running around in the woods delirious down in Northport. And he he went by his, one of his ex-teacher's house and she see him and she went out and tried to get him to come in and he wouldn't, he kept on going. DJ and went down there and got him and restrained him and took him back to the back Searport road and uh, they kept him there. DJ and took him to Waldo Mountain. And that when he come to, talking to him, and was trying to convince him to pay off the eight or nine thousand he owed him, and he was trying to t talk him into not ratting out. Thought he was going to rat him out. The money was over mushrooms that Jeremy was growing, and taking. And uh, Jeremy came at had his hand on a rock, so he whacked him in the head with it. And he went, he, when Jeremy fell on the ground, he kind of went into convulsions and was shaking all over, I guess. Well, runs up into the party and was hiding right there in the woods. So he just went right down there and beat him to there, literally. I censored all of the names mentioned, so it's a little hard to follow in this recording. But I'm going to paraphrase it. This man's son, DJ, was listening to a police scanner with his friend and heard the 911 call that Jeremy was acting erratically in someone's backyard. After hearing the 911 call, they drove around until they found Jeremy. They restrained him and then took him to Waldo Mountain, where a third individual was there waiting. When they got to the mountain, this third man was attempting to convince Jeremy to pay off a drug debt that he owed his dealer. Allegedly, Jeremy lunged at the one trying to convince him to pay and was struck in the head with a rock. 
When he fell and started convulsing, the drug dealer, who was hiding, emerged, then beat him to death with a two-by-four. He knocked Jeremy right out when he come to over there in the back transport road. Uh, they restrained him that way by keeping him unconscious till they got him to the mountain. They burned his clothes on the back transport road at that party, but I've told the state troopers and they've searched and they ain't found nothing. I almost disowned my son because of it, you know. And that body stayed there two or three years. Now, two years later, they tried to give me $3,000 to move that dead body. I wouldn't move it. I didn't know who it was then. I didn't know it was Jeremy. I didn't know my son was involved in it. And I wouldn't do it. So that they did. They moved the body. And, and I don't know that there's rumors they chipped it, the rumors they put it in the bog. I do know they threw his license and some money off the Belfast Bridge that was found later. I turned over where I thought the body was, but it wasn't there. I took the state trooper right there and showed him, and that's where I really thought it was, but I would, must have been wrong. Who went and moved the body finally? My boy DJ, uh, and um, drove the vehicle. It was only 1,500 feet from the uh, fire pit up there by the tower. I guess they got three buckets of bones. Police were involved in it. When I went to the to the van, the crime scene, they said, Merle Reed, Mike McFadden, you need to go out there and take control of that crime scene, see what's going on out there. They went out there. I called Channel 7, they went out to the van, and they had cameras rolling. And apparently their cameras, I hear their cameras picked up the cops with the billfold in their hands. And that means half the state of Maine were eyewitnesses of the police having the um, evidence in their hands. And still, there's no justice for Jeremy Allen's. We can't get them to go take a look at the footage of Channel 7. I went to Channel 7, they wouldn't even talk to me. What do you mean, the billfold in the hand? What, what would that mean? At Jeremy's van was a billfold. And uh, his billfold has ID and had cash money. But the, the fact of the matter is, is I saw that same billfold in the cop's hands not two blocks from where it was found two years later. And they're saying, Brad's crazy, we didn't have a billfold. Well, actually, they've never even said that. They just, you know, they just want everyone to just assume, you know, if they don't say anything, they're just gonna assume I'm crazy. I was in jail for filing and mailing court documents only. Uh, never was it alleged I did anything um, untoward. It was, um, it was all over filing and mailing court documents. Several times during our interview with Bradley, he brought up the jam band Fish, and specifically their drummer, John Fishman. He said Fishman used to live in Maine, and he knew him and his wife. They moved away for seven years, then he saw that they reopened their shop, so he sent them a letter. We weren't exactly sure what this had to do with Jeremy Alex, but the conversation always seemed to steer back towards fish. And I sent a letter to them. I said, you know, I was surprised to see you at the store, you know, welcome home. And enclosed is $40 for the Mimi Fishman Foundation. I sent them cash, the charitable contribution. And um, I asked if I could tell them about some dreams that I'd had seven years earlier. I said, you know, when you guys moved, I hadn't told you about these really bad dreams I had. I described them as dark, apocalyptic things, and I said, you know, because of current events, you know, I, I'd like the opportunity to tell you about these dreams I had before you guys moved away. I never had the opportunity to tell you because you moved. 
And uh, he was gone when she got that letter and the $40 from me. She called the police. She said, we don't want Brad contacting us ever again. She didn't like my letter and she didn't want me contacting them again, so she called the police. And here come Merle Reed, my cousin, Debbie Merle Reed, who I'd seen covering up the Jeremy Alice killing. And instead of telling John Fishman, Mrs. Fishman, this is not stalking, harassing behavior. It's a $40 charitable contribution for your charity. There's a difference and I'm not gonna pursue this unless you got some real threatening behavior. They decide they're gonna come after me with everything they got over that first call. I got railroaded by Merle Reed and Mike McFadden. He claims the same police officers that took Jeremy's wallet from his van were the ones who had him arrested. But he was sent to jail for stalking and harassing the drummer. And according to John Fishman's lawyer, this obsession goes back more than a decade. After doing a little more research on Bradley, we found someone who applied to work for his chimney sweeping business. She was willing to talk to us on the phone to tell us what she experienced. To be honest to you, uh, talking about this really gives me the jitters. I was actually kidnapped a couple years ago by this crazy dude named Bradley Williams. I met him online, I was looking for work. I have disabilities, I have seizures, so it's hard for me to find work. I figured I'd be good at stuff like chimney sweep and stuff like that because I aced my construction class. I went up there in good faith, and there was another lady up there, an older lady, so that made me even feel a little bit more comfortable going up in that situation. But apparently, like, shit just really went wicked south when I went up there. He drugged me, and he held me up there for, like, four days. And apparently he's done this to other women, too, according to the police. It was just really fucking freaky. When I went up there, this guy was talking about all this crazy shit about the police and how, like, they're killing people and shit. This crazy crap with him being in a cult. I don't understand why he was showing this to me. I think he was just trying to tell me, like, these cops had something to do with this stuff. He had this video that he, like, showed me when he drugged me into like that. This older gentleman in a cloak and a young boy who was bottomless, must have been eight years old, the child was being beat and sexually abused. And there was this weird cult symbol at the bottom of the screen. It was horrifying. I reached out to the detective, telling the detective about this. So I don't know what's 100% going on. He's been going up against this guy named John Fishman in Maine. I actually reached out to John Fishman as well because that's the person that actually is getting this person uh, charges because he's going crazy on John Fishman's wife and going crazy on the children too. Apparently he was just acting friendly to them at first, like just 
trying to be their friend when they just hired him for a job, as far as I know. And then, like, he really started to, like, be weird around the wife, talking about death and um, seeing her die in dreams and stuff and, like, the children and weird, just weird shit. It's so fucked up. Some things can never be explained. That doesn't mean we don't try to explain them. When something doesn't add up, it's only human to attempt the impossible, to make the math work, to make sense out of something that you'll never understand. Only one thing is for sure, you will never understand it, no matter how much you try. Yeah, I know once in a while you get shown the light in the strangest places if you look at it right, but what about the darkness? Sometimes, there's only one frustrating answer to a seemingly unanswerable question. Shit happens. Bad shit happens. End of story. Bob Weir knew this. Bad shit happened all the time. Like on August 9th, 1995, when his close friend and longtime bandmate Jerry Garcia, overweight and yet a husk of his former self, died suddenly of a heart attack at the age of 53. The years of bad eating and hard drugs had finally caught up to him. Shit, most people would try to shape up after their lifestyle dragged them into a diabetic coma, as had been the case with Jerry just nine years earlier, but he couldn't lay off the junk or the junk food. With Jerry gone, the Grateful Dead had no choice but to end their long, strange trip once and for all. Jerry's death hit all of them hard. The band, the fans, even President Bill Clinton acknowledged Jerry's contributions, hailing him as a genius. The flag that flew half-mast at San Francisco City Hall wasn't just any flag, but a tie-dye flag. It seemed hard to believe that the Grateful Dead would be no more. Calling it quits was a traumatic proposition for Bob, Phil Lesh, Bill Kreutzmann, and Mickey Hart. Playing in the band was all they had known for 30 years, and the whole thing was difficult to understand. Why did this have to happen? Why Jerry? Why now? But there was one member of the dead who seemed more distraught than the others. And surprisingly, it was the one who knew Jerry the least. Vince Welnick was hired in 1990 after the band's fourth keyboardist, Brent Midland, died from a speedball overdose. At the time of his audition, Vince, who had previously played with the San Francisco rock band The Tubes, was separated from his wife and sleeping in a barn. Getting hired to play keys for the dead at the height of their popularity was literally a lifeline. It gave him purpose, and it also made him rich. And when it was all suddenly over, just five years after it had begun, Vince Welnick didn't know what to do. Nothing made sense. Everything felt wrong. And later that year, while touring with Bob's new band, Rat Dog, Vince swallowed 57 Valium pills, laid down in his bunk on the band's tour bus, and waited for it all to end. But after a quick trip to the emergency room, the only thing that ended was Vince's tenure in another band. And as the years went on, Vince routinely called the Grateful Dead's office to float the idea of a reunion. He even included a message on his website stating that he had discussed a reunion with the band's management, and he was cautiously holding out hope. He wanted another chance at that golden road of unlimited devotion, but to the rest of the dead, Vince's devotion was just weird, borderline creepy. 
When Bob, Phil, Bill, and Mickey reunited for the first time since Jerry's death in 2002 for live shows under the name The Other Ones, Vince was not invited. Nor was he there in 2005 when members of the dead and their families paid tribute to Jerry on the 10th anniversary of his death during a show at UC Berkeley's Greek Theater. If he came out on stage to play, Bob Weir later said, I don't know how we would have gotten him off. He was unstable. I'm sorry for Vince, but stuff doesn't always work out the way people want. And then on June 2nd, 2006, 11 years after Jerry's death, Vince Welnick's wife, Lori, found him walking along a hillside near their home in Forestville, California. She was looking for him because she had just found a bottle of booze in the house, something that was strictly off limits. It was mid-morning, and Vince was walking towards the horizon, his back to her. Lori called out to him, and he paused. He slowly turned around. She could see a knife in his hand. It caught some sun from the blue sky above and glinted. Without saying a word, Vince lifted the knife to his throat. With one quick movement, he sliced the blade across his neck. The blood ran down the front of his body, and Lori screamed. Though he was still alive when the ambulance arrived, Vince Welnick was later declared dead at the Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital. He was 55 years old. And now Bob Weir once again found himself grieving over the death of a former bandmate while also making sense out of the concept of bad shit. And this time, he was explaining that concept to Lori Welnick, Vince's widow, how it was only natural to try to make sense of every little thing, when in reality, the only constant in life was that things simply don't make sense. It was a losing battle. Lori blamed Bob for her husband's death. She blamed the Grateful Dead, all of them, the whole fucking band. She blamed the keyboardist Bench, the one that Ron Pigpen McKernan, Keith Godshaw, and Brent Midland had sat on prior to Vince. Each of them died a tragic death. The Bench was a curse. And she was left with nothing, just questions. But one question in particular. Why did Vince do what he did? She saw him do it. She watched it happen. She had the what, but she didn't have the why. She probably never would. And that was going to take some getting used to. Lori Welnick wasn't alone. There were others out there in the Grateful Dead's extended orbit who weren't sure if they'd ever get used to not knowing the answers. Like who murdered Adam Katz? Where was Jennifer Wilmer? And what happened to Jeremy Alex? And every time you get close to accepting the fact that those questions may simply be unanswerable, that it was all just more bad shit happening, someone says something and new evidence comes to light. And then you think, Maybe I can solve this after all. Maybe I can make the math work. And the key mantra to consider here may be buried in the verses and outro of a bluesy song that Jerry sang on Working Man's Dead. A song that the dead played for only about a year before and after that seminal album came out and laid dormant for 20 years before making its way back into their set lists in 1991. And they played it right up through the month before Jerry died, the lyric. Things went down we don't understand, but I think in time we will. One way or another, this darkness has got to give.
Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and Jake Brennan. Check out Jake's other music and true crime show, Disgraceland, about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis, and brought to you by Cadence 13 and executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and Jake Brennan. This show is produced by myself, Mike Rooney, Alex Vespasted, and Eric Quintana. Mixed by Cooper Skinner. Music by Makeup and Vanity Set. With additional music services by Ryan Spraker. Additional mixing by Matt Bowden. Additional writing by Zeth Lundy. Copy edited by Pat Healy. Research and reporting by Eric Tricky. Cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Orrin Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA. Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group. Chris Cochran and the Cadence 13 team, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. And as always, thank you for your support.